Today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Over 180,000 titles to choose from your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. If you sign up for your 30-day trial, you have the opportunity to take advantage of the Harry Potter series written by J.K. Rowling and chronicles the life of a young wizard and his friends who attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. All seven novels from The Sorcerer's Stone to The Deathly Hallows is now available at audible.com. So take advantage of the offer to get the 30-day free trial using audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. It's that time. It's shameless plug time plugging it away all right so you should already be subscribed to black girl nerds and if you haven't shame on you that's okay i forgive you this is your opportunity on soundcloud subscribe also comment and like and give us tons and tons of hearts we love hearts also itunes rate subscribe let us know what you think give us comments remember with itunes the more subscriptions the more ratings the more visibility we get in iTunes. Also with Stitcher, subscribe, rate us, let us know what you think. These things are important because guess what? In the podcast space, numbers have meaning and with numbers come more visibility and with more visibility include great guests, VIP guests, I should say, and also be able to give you more content, let this podcast evolve in the way it should. So I'm not just asking you this because, hey, I want to be popular. I'm asking because these things actually do matter in the podcast world. So subscribe, rate, comment, tell everybody about it. Tell your friends, tell your family members, tell your pets, tell anybody that you think would be remotely interested in listening to our podcast or even, hey, go look. Can you do me a favor? If you like and subscribe and rate this, then you don't have to owe me that money that you had said you've been owing me for the last three and a half weeks. Do what you got to do so that way you are showing your support. Also, if you want to financially support us, we welcome anything that you can give us. So you can do that a few ways. You can go to our website, blackgirlnerds.com. There's a PayPal button. Hit that donate button and pay whatever you please. Every little dime counts. It really goes a long way. Also, you can advertise with us on blog ads. Didn't know if you know that, but yes, you can advertise with us. So if you click on the blog ads link, that will take you over to a cart. You can advertise as long as you want and upload all your images. And believe it or not, there have been some very happy clients with blog ads. So take advantage of that opportunity. And finally, guess what? We are having a sale on Tee Public. Yes. 
All of our t-shirts are $14. They normally go for $20. And they're now $14 because of the Black Friday sales and Cyber Monday sales that are coming up. So if you want to wear some really cool swag for your next convention, if you need to find a really great stocking stuffer for that loved one, purchase a shirt on TeePublic and give you the discounted rate. Tank tops go at $18, crew necks go at $30, hoodies are $35. We've got wall art up to 20% off. Take advantage of the sale and enjoy it. So make sure to go to our pinned tweet on Twitter, Black Girl Nerds on Twitter, there's a pinned tweet. It's got the link, the link will take you over to the site where you can take advantage of the sale offer and discount. And thanks for your support. And thank you for listening to this shameless plug. Now go do those things now. Now just pause the podcast right now. Go subscribe. Go rate. Go like. Then go to Tee Public. Get your shirt. Then tell all of your friends about BlackGirlNerds.com. Tell them about blog ads. Tell them to donate. Then once you're done, hit play and get ready for the show. Martine Sims is an artist based in Los Angeles. She's the founder of Dominica, a publishing imprint dedicated to exploring blackness and visual culture. From 2007 to 2011, Sims directed Golden Age, a project space focused on printed matter. Her artwork has been exhibited and screened extensively, including presentations at the New Museum, the Studio Museum in Harlem, Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, MCA Chicago, Green Gallery, Gene Siskel Film Center, and White Flag Projects. She is lectured at Yale University, SXSW, California Institute of the Arts, University of Chicago, John Hopkins University, and MoMA PS1, among other venues. She's recently created and directed the series Artbound. Martine Sims has directed the season premiere episode titled Mundane Afrofuturist Manifesto. Take a listen. Thanks for tuning in to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie Brodnax. I'm your host. I am here with Martine Sims. She is a director of a film web series called Mundane Afrofuturist Manifesto. It's an hour-long special that proposes a new theory of the Black aesthetic in the 21st century. Thank you so much, Martine, for coming on and talking to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, first of all, tell me a little bit more about who you are as an artist and what inspired you to direct this season premiere of the episode Artbound? Well, the Mundane After Futures Manifesto is a text that I wrote in 2013 for rhizome.org, which is a new media arts organization um, that I've worked with a lot. They're based in New York. And I was inspired to do that because I was working on this sound piece that was a kind of sci-fi story set in Los Angeles in 2050 that followed a young black woman sort of one day in her work that was called Most Days. And Rhizome asked me to write about it, and I and I created this kind of manifesto just thinking about that kind of work. Um, so fast forward two years later, earlier this year, 
Um, I had just completed a film for Mocha TV with Khalil Joseph and Artbound does episodes that are sort of several Mocha TV shorts together and they interview the artists. And so they brought me to KCT to interview me. And as I was talking, I had mentioned some of the ideas about Afrofuturism and the manifesto. And they approached me about developing that into an hour long special that is now you know, the premiere episode of Art Bound's new season. Nice. Now, this is on a TV show. This is, I, I apologize, I think I said webisode. This is not on the internet streaming. This is actual TV series that's on a network. Yeah, um, Art Bound is sort of like multimedia, so it can be watched online on their website, and there's a lot of editorial that's been done sort of in association with this, interviews with the artists, um, kind of behind-the-scenes footage. And then in addition to that, yeah, it's broadcast on television, live, on KCT here, and on Link TV nationally. For those that are listening that don't know, and I know we here at the Black Girl Learns podcast, we had an Afrofuturism podcast episode a while back, but for new listeners, can you explain what Afrofuturism actually is? Sure. The term was coined by Mark Derry, who's a critic um, in an essay that he wrote called Black to the Future, where he was sort of theorizing works by Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney, um, as well as sort of house musicians like Underground Resistance and um, hip-hop artists as well. And really the idea of Afrofuturism is sort of how black people have used technology and used sort of archival materials to create and imagine new futures. Now, the title of the episode is The Mundane Afrofuturist Manifesto. What does that mean to you? I was looking at um, an essay by Jeff Ryman, who is a science fiction writer, and he was the head of this Clarion West workshop, which is kind of this well-known sci-fi writer's workshop. Um, Octavia Butler actually got really started um, going to that workshop. And Mm. in 2004, they had written this manifesto called the Mundane Science Fiction Manifesto, which was mostly driven by environmental concerns and sort of thinking about if all the time we're imagining kind of being on another planet, that we might let things happen to this planet um, that we don't want and that there's, you know, just like actual things that would be happening on Earth that are already crazy enough that we can sort of talk about. And so I was thinking about some of those same ideas within Afrofuturism, which at this point I think definitely had adopted certain tropes. And I was seeing a lot of sort of the same uh, visual aesthetic and starting to think about Afrofuturism just purely as like a way of working and also um, thinking about, you know, that everyday black life is kind of strange enough that I was interested in just the dynamic sphere of like my daily life and imagining the future of that. How did you first get involved with it? And also with what's going on now in television and film and all of these genre TV shows that do feature some people of color, sci-fi fantasy, and particularly like Sleepy Hollow and Minority Report and Mm -hmm. Dark Matters. Um, Where do you see Afrofuturism fitting into that aspect of genre television and that aspect of the entertainment industry? Well, I became involved, I guess, recently through a screening series called Black Radical Imagination, which is featured in this 
Artbound episode. Um, and really, I hadn't thought of myself as being Afrofuturist. Maybe I would have just considered myself more a black nerd. I use a lot <laughs> of technology, and I like to be on the computer. Um, but, you know, really through speaking with Aaron Cristobal and Amir George, who are the curators of that program and my involvement in that, I've sort of that was really where I started to think about my work in that tradition. And I see, you know, the trend of it. I, I hope to see more and more of it. There's a lot of exciting stories. And I think even just taking from a friend of mine who has a restaurant here, an Ethiopian restaurant, um, she, we always talk about, you know, her parents kind of immigration story. She's like really interested in translating that into a kind of genre narrative. And I think that within, you know, the African diaspora, there's a lot of um, parallels, obviously, between ideas of alienation and abduction and being in new lands and that can um, lend themselves to those kind of storytelling. So I hope to see more of it. Where do you see Afrofuturism in five to 10 years? Do you think that we're going to see more stories translated not only in TV and, and film, but also in print books, comic books. Where do you see it going? No, I really don't see any kind of end to it. I think the more people that are interested in technology, the more, um, you know, that we'll start to see this kind of genre fiction and also just imagination, more people who are kind of like doing science-based work. Um, so to me, I just feel like, it's just going to keep expanding. I mean, even now there's like Marvel just doing series, starting to do more series with sort of black leads. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a good indicator that there'll just be more and more of that. And hopefully not just, you know, it'll just be more diverse across the board, not just uh, after futures way, but that everyone will kind of be included in visions of the future. Right. Right. Um, just, people that are from all different backgrounds, from people that are fluid in their gender and their sexuality and folks that with disabilities. I think it's really important to focus on stories where people are all included and it's not just this monolith of whiteness that we tend to see happening on television. Yeah. What are your thoughts about like a lot of the whitewashing that's been happening recently with stories that come out of historically black nations like <laughs> Egypt right. um, with the gods of Egypt film um, that has recently been released and just showing images of white Scandinavian actors. What are your opinions about that and, and the narrative that is being presented, you know, to us with, with all of these optics of just white faces? Yeah, I think really that's no surprise um, with the film industry and Hollywood in general. If you think of like one of the earliest films sort of in narrative cinema being Birth of a Nation, like that's the history that's founded on. So hmm. there's no surprise to me there, um, I think. But really, like with the access that everyone has now, there's it's like or even thinking of like the L.A. Rebellion, which is a kind of group that was very influential to the way that I work and all the filmmakers that I like, um, you know, some of them made two and three films right when they got were out of getting out of school. And that was on film, actually shooting, and it was much more expensive. So I feel like, or Tangerine, that movie that just came out, that's all shot kind of on iPhones. I feel like you can't really expect that much out of Hollywood cinema <laughs> to be, like, <laughs> representative or, like, to tell um, a story that even is remotely realistic and sometimes remotely interesting. Um, so I feel like 
it's just m- the more people that are making their own films and, you know, even somebody like Ava DuVernay who right. directed Selma recently. I mean, I've heard her speak about that and just saying that not waiting for somebody to give permission or not want, you know, not waiting for the story to be told, but for writing her own script and kind of getting the movie made herself and how she distributes other people's films through array. Right. You know, I find that really interesting and probably where we're going to see more good work than if we wait for the kind of studios to make it. For someone that is very interested in Afrofuturism and they're hearing this term for the first time and they're really super excited about it, but they don't know quite where to begin. What books would you recommend that they read? What TV shows or movies do you suggest they start with to kind of get their feet wet and then learn more and grow and evolve in this, uh, this subculture? Well, I would recommend reading Mark Derry's essay, um, Black to the Future. Also, Kodo Ishan um, and Greg Tate. These are all people who have written a lot about this, uh, about the subject and the references and sort of footnotes in those books will give you plenty to read and watch and listen to for, you know, a couple of years. But then also on, on top of that, I feel like Octavia Butler is somebody whose work yes. is really foundational. Um, yeah. And Samuel Delaney as well. Like both of them, I would highly recommend on the fiction side of things. Um, those are two kind of, yeah, off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am ashamed that I didn't know about Octavia Butler before 2012 when I started Black Girl Nerds. I went to an HBCU, all black, you know, college. And um, even in high school, I, I didn't have any sort of historical literature or anything in the textbooks that we read that talked about Octavia Butler's stories. And it's very disappointing that it wasn't until my adulthood and after she had passed that I knew about her works. And I definitely encourage you guys, if you've never picked up an Octavia Butler book, to do so. It's, It's some of the best writing that I've read in science fiction fantasy in a really long time. Um, Do you have a particular Octavia Butler book that is a favorite? I mean, I really do like Kindred. It's still, it's something I was always afraid of, like being a slave. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I read that book, I just felt like, um, you know, it's just been so influential um, and still just so relevant. And I also think, you know, the only reason I know who she knew who she was was really because I grew up in the same area, um, this kind of Pasadena area of Los Angeles. And one thing I'm very excited about is that the Huntington Library acquired all of her papers and they've got them under lock and key right now, but slowly they're letting people kind of access that. And there's so many more books and screenplays and things that she was working on that we haven't seen. Um, So that's the coolest part. And I'm hoping that Again, like this gets out now that it's in a a permanent kind of collection. I really hope that there is someone out there that can obtain the rights to her works and make them into movies or TV shows because it it just has to happen. Like her her work, some of the, the descriptions in her novels are just so perfect for television or the big screen that it makes sense that this should be adapted um, mm-hmm. for, for cinema. So I really, really hope to, to see something happen sooner than later because 
Hollywood now, everything is being rebooted and recycled. And, oh, we're coming out with another Ghostbusters movie, redoing Memento. And then I heard that they're doing Top Gun again. Like, rather than <laughs> recycling, rebooting, remaking these films, let's go back to some original stuff and release some Octavia's Butler's works or, you know, other science fiction fantasy authors, um, L.A. Banks vampire series. Like, let's get some real good stuff out there. Uh, yeah. So it, I, I think that that's so important. And I, I really love the work that you're doing with, with your project. Where can listeners go, first of all, to download, go on TV and, and watch your, your program? And also give us your social media shout outs. I'm only on Twitter. My, my name is Martine Sims there. And you can watch the um, episode at kcet.org slash arts slash Artbound. Um, it's the kind of premiere episode there. So all the links will be there. And any more information about myself, um, my website is the best place to find that, which is just martinesims.com. Excellent. Thank you, Martine, for coming on and chatting with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. is a feminist blogger, theorist, and vegan. She's the founder of the website Afroism, which she provides critical analysis from a black vegan feminist perspective with her sister, Syl, who is also a vegan. Af's work has been discussed in The Daily Beast, Ebony, Slate, The Feminist Wire, Mike.com, Cosmopolitan, Afropunk, Bust Magazine, and The Huffington Post. This past year, AF was awarded the Anti-Racist Vegan Changemaker of the Year Award by the Sista Vegan Project and the Pollination Project. AF is known for writing the first list that spotlighted 100 black vegans to dispel the stereotype that veganism is a white person's thing. AF is also the founder of the new groundbreaking website that is set to be launched in January called Black Vegans Rock. The site will spotlight black vegans who are doing incredible work every day. I am here with Afco. Afco is a vegan. She's an activist. She's involved in a lot of different projects. And we're going to talk about the vegan community and how there's actually a lot of racism happening with white people in the vegan community and also just sort of the self-perpetuating issues of race and how black people seem to be put into this very small, tiny box that we can't be vegan. And she's here to really break it down to us and, and really crush these stereotypes that we're hearing about and seeing every day in the media. Thank you, Afco, for, for coming on and chatting with us. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jamie. I'm very excited. Thank you. So you are a feminist blogger and a self-declared vegan, and you were recently featured in a compelling article that I read on Mike.com about how the white vegan community fails to deliver an intersectional approach uh, to their activism. Can you elaborate on that and tell us what has been your personal experience? Absolutely. Yes. When I originally became vegan, it happened because I read a book called Sista Vegan, which was edited by um, a really kind of famous black feminist theorist named Dr. Amy Breeze Harper. And before then, I'd heard about veganism, but I didn't really connect with the messages, which made sense later because it was so white. Um, so right now, 
I think across the board in a lot of social justice spaces, we're starting to realize as black people that <laughs> there seems to be a grammar of whiteness in our movements. We've heard white feminism that's become part of our like cultural imagination right now. Mm -hmm. And white veganism right now is becoming a term. Um, so if you don't normally grapple with your racial location daily, chances are you're not going to work it into your analysis of oppression. And that's pretty much how I frame it with white people. A lot of mainstream white vegan movements today are um, pretty heterosexist, trans antagonistic, as well as racist. And what I mean by that is that, for example, if you go online and you type in vegan and you click on Google images, you'll probably find um, memes of like a lynched black person right next to an image of like a butchered pig. Oh and for a lot of white vegans, yeah, for a lot of white vegans, that's their way of kind of like comparing oppressions to kind of emotionally shock you into caring about animals. However, for a lot of black people, when they see that imagery, you know, um, mm. it's really offensive, especially because a lot of white vegans don't seriously grapple with racism today. So they pretty much use our, our history Right, uh, or the imagery from our history to draw sympathy towards animal bodies today without examining racism today, right? <laughs> so a lot of black people, I, I would argue, they're kind of justified in this assumption that veganism seems like it's just for white people, at least on the mainstream, which really sucks for people like me who are black vegans, um, because before we can even really get into what we do, we first have to dismantle stereotypes that kind of white people created about veganism. And the main, the most like famous organization is PETA, People right. for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Um, and, and, you know, lately they've been using black and brown bodies in their ads. However, again, it's just for like this cosmetic diversity thing, which basically means they're not working our experiences into their foundation. They're just using our bodies to shut us up when we say, hey, you're being racist. They're like, oh no, look, here's Wendy Williams in an ad. We're not racist. You know what I mean? So, wow. yeah, they don't really grapple with intersectionality as then looking at the ways in which black people are experiencing oppression today, women, as well as animals. They have no clue what they're doing, which is why I'm part of a different movement, which is the black vegan movement. Why do you think that there is such a stigma behind the fact that being a vegan is only a white people thing, air quotes? Mm. Uh, you yeah. know, has, has white supremacy fostered the idea that veganism is only for white people? Or is it something that we as people of color perpetuate that stereotype that we, in fact, can't be vegan? That's a great question. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's two parts to this. The first part is that white people across the board tend to have access to some of the largest, most lucrative platforms for their activism. And so their version of oppression will be the only version of oppression and their version of the solution becomes the only solution. Mm -hmm. So the biggest privilege I think white people experience that they don't even know about is that their worldview, their perspective, their experiences are naturalized as reality. Uh, we just have to grapple with it. And if we realize like, wait a minute, you guys are only factoring in race. Suddenly we're playing the race card. That's seen as extra, you know what I mean? Rather than part of the framework. So I think the main issue is that veganism as a social justice movement has been corporatized by white people. And so you have a bunch of white vegan organizations that are making a lot of profit and a lot of grassroots people like myself, you know, I can't really compete with their message and I'm drowned out. So definitely white supremacy has played a part. And most importantly, they've played a part in revising black history. And they've kind of convinced black people that we've been eating meat forever. Eating meat is absolutely normal. 
Um, and white media has pretty much advertised this to us. And there's a reason why advertising essentially is a billion dollar industry. And so the second part is that oftentimes, unfortunately, black people accidentally collude in their own oppression mm -hmm. because the mainstream oppressive systems have essentially learned how to speak our language. And in doing that, They've learned how to talk us into our oppression package as kind of like this individual empowering choice. So I would argue blackness has largely been corporatized by white organizations as well. And they use black people in ads, like in McDonald's ads and fast food ads to kind of convince black people that this is the real black experience. It's very manufactured and it's very, it's very fake. And I think a lot of black media unfortunately perpetuates this meat centric um, agenda. Even if you think about I can just use one example, although there's like hundreds. Think about a stereotypical Tyler Perry movie, right? Mm -hmm. And I know it, uh, this is totally like a straw person argument, but I'm, I'm using him because he tends to be in the mainstream movie theaters a lot. So if you take one Medea movie, I don't remember what it's called, but it actually starts in a hospital. It deals with a person, um, a black man, who can't even pronounce the word colonoscopy because he's having health issues. And that's supposed to be funny. Me that he's uh, medically illiterate. We're supposed to laugh at that. Mm -hmm. The daughter has like diabetes. Medea's at a drive through calling her and then the movie ends when a character dies of cancer you know wow. so it's pretty much meat has become a part of the black experience is a manufactured part as well as health disparities like we've almost romanticized that in the black community all of us at some point like even in my own family we have a family member that has like diabetes or some type of colon problem or hypertension heart disease so yeah i think it's both white supremacy and unfortunately white pe um, black people being kind of bamboozled into their own oppression and then you had mentioned, too, about um, corporatizing black culture and sort of the commodification of, of blackness. Yeah. There's a book called Thug Kitchen by Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> it's not by Gwyneth. She shared it, though. That's how it became famous. Oh, my gosh. What, yes. what was going on? Because I have issues with Gwyneth Paltrow anyway. Oh, me too. <laughs> oh. What was going on with that book? Why Thug Kitchen? And, and is this a condescending problem that is happening among many white vegans in this community? Oh, my gosh, yes. Thug Kitchen was made by, um, it was, I think, initially a blog, and it turned into like a cookbook. And it was supposed to be for, like, hipster white people. Like, two 30-year-old white people made this. And um, they were like, no, thug is like gangster. We don't mean it in a black way. And, and, and uh, this is happening during a time where black people are dying because of unhealthy food options because of our racist food system. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, black people are being gunned down <laughs> because of their you know, supposed association of thug stereotypes. And then you have these two white people take the word thug trying to be funny and then getting on the New York times because of it. Just, I think it was what two, three weeks ago, the New York times spotlighted them. And this is a year after tons of black activists have come out against the book. The New wow. York times is still spot, uh, hi highlighting them. So that's, it's just a slap in the face left and right, which is why I'm all about starting my own black vegan movement. And even if you think about, um, uh, back to the corporations, how McDonald's, for example, um, I didn't know this until about three weeks ago. McDonald's, which is known for um, being in like food deserts where black and Latino people live and don't mm -hmm. have access to fresh um, produce, but they can get fried chicken really, really easily. Um, McDonald's kind of taps into that nostalgia of blackness, which is why, you know, you have Thug Kitchen in the mainstream with all the white people being advertised as being vegan. Then you have McDonald's tapping into the black community 
where they actually have an initiative that they started in the early 2000s called 365 Black. And it's an actual website. You can Google it. And um, the, the goal of it is to celebrate black culture 365 days a year. And what they do is they put on gospel tours featuring famous black gospel singers. They give out scholarships for historically black colleges and universities. They're at the Essence Festival. In September, Ava DuVernay received an award from uh, the McDonald's Black Awards. That's a real thing uh, for Selma. If you, so she's at the podium, and this is this past September, she's at the podium with the golden arches on the podium. And this is really ironic for those of us that study this because McDonald's is known for praying after black people, and we can argue um, killing them in terms of their health. And then they're awarding civil rights films. And even bloggers, um, I might be mispronouncing this, it's Awesomely Lovey. Or, oh, yeah, Awesomely Lovey. Yeah, I love, I love that website. Yes. And I just found out three weeks ago that, yeah, McDonald's is sponsoring her, and she's on the website. And I was like, whoa, this is really, like, like this, is, this is scary a little bit for people like me who, you know, I have no way of ever being supported by McDonald's or anything like that. And if I'm to speak against them, it's just scary for people like me. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot to soak in. But I would, I'd urge everyone to go check out the website 365 Black. It's pretty scary. <laughs> One of the things that um, has always been difficult for me, because I actually tried to go vegan for like sure. three months, right? Sure. And it all started with Alicia Silverstone being on oh, Oprah Winfrey's show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And she was talking about her book, The Kind Diet. And then she had also recommended watching this documentary called Food, Inc. So I sure. put it in my head. I'm like, all right, let me give this whole thing a shot. I watched Food, Inc. Scared the living crap out of me, yes. especially <laughs> the way they treat chickens and how the chickens are put into this coop where there's no light and they're just running around frantic and all of their stress levels go way up because of it. Yes. And those cortisol levels actually get transferred to the very food that's on your plate and yes. that affects your health. So I was like, you know what? I, I need to start taking care of myself. So I did the whole vegan thing. I bought her book. Sure. And one of the things that was very challenging for me, because first of all, I have to say, going vegan for three months, best thing that ever happened to me. Sure. I lost 20 pounds. <laughs> my skin cleared up. I have terrible acne, adult acne. <laughs> that cleared up. My fingernails were like white and hard. <laughs> And I was regular when I went to the bathroom. Like, there it was great. <laughs> Benefits. <laughs> yes. But I found that it was very expensive to find products that had no animal fat in it. And I lived in a small town at the time. I lived in Wilmington, North Carolina, and they didn't have a Whole Foods yet. They do now. But um, I had to resort to going to these health food stores where nothing was less than five bucks. Yes, and, yes. you know, I'm buying agave syrup because I decided <laughs> to stay away from the white refined sugar. Yeah. And I'm just like, my grocery bill is ridiculous. And the reason why I stopped was I, I couldn't afford it anymore. Sure. So sure. how can us, for those that are not economically there yet to be able to support eating healthy, what can we do to try to eat healthy and, and even transition to becoming either vegetarian or vegan and be sure. able to save money? So I think it's more of a, a mindset change than it is an economic change. And I say that because if you're used to eating meat-centric foods, like, for example, when I started out as vegan, it was so difficult for me because I knew how to fry chicken, I knew how to cook steak, I knew how to do all of that. Mm. But when it came to creating vegan food, I was like, I don't even know what that is. Right. Um, so I started out getting, like, the processed vegan burgers that were really expensive because I'm like, oh, all I know is, 
you know, meat vocabulary. Give me like the, the vegan chicken, the vegan steak. <laughs> and then as I've become more and more vegan, I would argue, I'm realizing it's more of a mindset change for me and that my meals have been reflecting that, that I no longer necessarily try to mimic animal products as much as I from scratch try to cook stuff. And I'm, I found for me, it's actually cheaper when I buy in bulk of fruits, vegetables, and grains, and from there cook. And, I think, and and a lot of us as activists would argue because veganism isn't just a diet; it's also um, it, it's it's like a political mindset. So centering yourself in a movement that should be not only about you know helping out blackness and fighting white supremacy, but it's also about privileging. Um, animal exploitation and making sure that you're not participating in it. So like you said, when you see these chickens in the documentary and you see what they're going through or cows, which sometimes I can't even watch that stuff, yeah. immediately it should spark a mindset change. And if not, I would I would urge people to go back to the literature because um, when you don't have the right mindset and you go into veganism, let's say only as a diet, I promise you it won't stick. I promise you. Um, yeah. It's the same with any political movement. If you join feminism, for example, but you think it's only about just, let's say, like watching movies with women in it. After a while, you're going to be like, oh, I don't really get the point. Like if your be other behaviors aren't changing, you won't get it. So I would urge people to try to change their mindsets before they try to change their economics. Because once when you become vegan, like it all starts to shift. And so then you even know how to spend your money in the right way versus like me in the beginning, like going to the wrong aisles and getting all the vegan processed foods and stuff that actually wasn't even healthy and just like, you know, be going into debt. So that's, that would be my response to that. <laughs> yeah. So it's all about really finding ways to be economically savvy and just committing yourself to that. And then that will help you. Cause that, that was what was frustrating mm. for me sure. is I was just trying to find anything on the web with coupons and finding sure. ways to save the money. But I'm like, okay, this thing called Satan. I'm like, why is there a food called Satan? Um, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like this This is really expensive um, as opposed to just having some bacon with my eggs sure. in the morning sure. or whatever. Sure. Um, so, so that's what was really uh, frustrating for me as someone that's that wanted to change my lifestyle, but I just didn't have the, the finances to, to sure. support it. No, that makes sense. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so for me, yeah, I think in the beginning, a lot of people start. And again, I think this is because back to what we we're talking about originally, because veganism has been articulated through whiteness, because mm. white people pretty much own the movement right now. Yeah. A lot of us are first introduced to veganism only as a diet. And that is why I would argue is more of the white centric way of doing veganism, which is just the, the, you know, the kale and the stuff. But once when you get into more of the, the black feminist articulations of veganism, it becomes more about the political side. And even I wanted to mention really quickly that I'm sure most of us have heard of the Black Panthers, correct? Uh, I'm yeah. sure. Most, yeah. Uh, well, in the 70s and 80s, there was actually an organization called MOVE, M-O-V-E. And um, they don't get as much traction because the U.S. government actually bombed them in the 80s. <laughs> their oh, compound. Wow. But they were also a black radical group. It was all about black liberation. Instead of the Afros, they grew up dreadlocks. And mm -hmm. what made them uh, a lot different from the Black Panthers was that they advocated for animal rights. So I'm going to argue that a lot of black people already have that kind of vegan sensibility. It's in the spirit of intersectionality and blackness and fighting white supremacy. It's just that these movements have become so whitewashed that it's almost like as black folk, we're relearning how our diets. You know what I mean? Like, I think if that makes any sense, I'm going <laughs> to, yeah, I can go on for like, 30 hours about this, but I just want to throw that out there. Move was definitely problematic in um, a lot of ways, but I want, I want to urge people to Google that type of stuff because 
to combat the idea that veganism is just this white thing. Right. It's a really, really, really political movement, which was, I know you read that Mike.com piece. And uh, Julie, the author of it, did a really good job showing just how political it was, definitely. So it sounds like definitely like lack of access and mm. these movements that are centered around specific groups, mostly white sure. people that mm-hmm. push people out and that there's a lot of racial and systemic <laughs> oppression that's happening. So, so what can we as people of color do to find spaces that support us if we do want to transition to being a vegan or a vegetarian? Sure. Sure. And this is why I love the internet, seriously, because so it reminds me a lot of when I used to talk about natural hair, that I became natural when I was 19 and I shaved all my relaxed hair off and I was like, I don't know how to do my hair. So what did I do? I went online, I went to YouTube and I learned my hair texture through the internet, which right. is weird, but which a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And similarly with veganism, or especially black veganism, I was lost. I had Sister Vegan, the book, but I was like, well, what do I do with this? So I went online and there are really awesome spaces. There's one called um, By Any Greens Necessary. It is brilliant. It's specifically geared towards black women. There's Blacks Going Vegan, um, Sister Vegan Project. And I am actually launching a new website in January, which I'm really excited about, called Black Vegans Rock. And it's um, an extension of an article I wrote back in June that listed 100 black vegans to dispel the stereotype that veganism is just this white thing. And it'll, uh, it's going to be a resource to spotlight black vegans every single day who are doing amazing work. If they have restaurants, if they have a catering company, if they just released a book, anything, any project they're working on and they need some visibility because the mainstream white movements aren't giving it to them. I want to have a space for that. So if anyone's new um, or like checking out veganism or feels like, uh, like especially a black person, if they're like, I want to go vegan, but I'm not feeling the message right now. Like it's just all white people. This seems like it's just about the animals. What am I supposed to be doing with this? Mm-hmm. I want to create a resource um, that black people can go to and feel like this is for them, you know, specifically for black people who are thinking about going vegan or who are already vegan and need some visibility. Yeah. You also featured a series on Black Girl Nerds called Black Feminist Bloggers web series. Mm-hmm. Are you still working on that? Tell us more about that. Thank you for thank you for even featuring that. Thank you, Black Girl <laughs> Nerds. Ooh. Um, I'm currently not right now because I'm working on different projects. However, um, it was just really for fun. I mean, I had no experience with any of it. It was just me and one other person filming it. I wrote everything. It was tons of fun. And, and I actually was um, approached by producers. Mm-hmm. However, of course, the typical story, they wanted to make my character Latoya. They didn't want her to be feminist. They didn't want this to be about black feminism. They wanted to make it relatable to everybody, meaning white people. Oh, God. So, yeah, it was it was rough because like they wanted me to rewrite some things, the script basically to fit white audiences. Like let's just make this a workplace drama instead of like about feminism. And that kind of discouraged me a little bit. And yeah, I, was, I didn't really that know where to go. That sucks the whole it. entire flavor of the show. Like it, yeah. it's against the whole thing of what the show is supposed to be about. <laughs> yeah. I was like, why are you contacting me? <laughs> like, okay. Uh, so for right now, I love to revisit it, but I had no funding. I literally just did it because I was frustrated. And when I get really angry about things, like I was having a horrible time blogging under white women, um, I just take out my anger creatively. So I just picked up a camera and started filming, and people liked it, and I was like, cool. Um, but I'd love to revisit it. But right now, I'm just predominantly working on the Black Vegans um, Rock website. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, this was a great discussion. I really appreciate you just taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us 
about Black Vegans Rock. Again, let us know the website address, also your social media shout outs, where we can find you and any other current projects that you're working on. That's a good point. I always forget that part (laughs) to advertise (laughs) myself. Um, So Black Vegans Rock, the website's going to be www.blackvegansrock.com. And it's going to be up in January. So if you happen to go on the URL and it's not working, or if you just see like a weird picture, don't worry. In January, it'll be up. Um, You can find me by typing in AFCO into Google. I have a WordPress personal word page that I have, as well as Afroism. It's a website I run with my sister, Syl. We're both black vegan feminists, and we provide really kind of theoretical insights into oppression today. Um, and yeah, you can find me on Facebook the same way. Type in AFCO, and you'll definitely be seeing a lot more black vegans rock within the next coming month. Trust me, I need to really push it out. So yeah, there you go. AFCO, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Jamie. This was amazing. Thank you so much.
BGN podcast provided by Ash and Samus.